You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You watch enough political speeches, Hannah, and it gets to the point you don't even hear it anymore. But don't let anyone tell you that America isn't great. I think we have to get back to what this election has to be about, okay? This, we, this is the greatest country in the history of mankind. We live in the greatest nation on earth. Thank you. Instead, I tell this story just to remind you of the magical, intoxicating power of America. You're listening to Civics 101. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And today we're asking how we measure up against the rest of the world. It seems, Hannah, every few weeks we come up with another series on our show, but this is one I desperately want to revisit. It's called Us Versus, or U.S. Versus, where we compare other successful, or sometimes unsuccessful, governmental systems to our own. And today, something we get asked about constantly, the two-party system. Why do we have it? Can it change? And most importantly, how does our system compare to other democracies? And yeah, I'm doing like a whole Street Fighter 2 thing. This is the opening music to that, by the way. What is Street Fighter 2? It's a violent lesson in democracy, Hannah. Players pick a fighter who lives in a country somewhere in the world, and they fly around the world visiting other countries and do battle with other fighters there. So it's an arcade game. It's an arcade game. You win. And right off the bat, I have to say, that is ridiculous. There is no M. Bison to defeat at the end of this episode. But I do want to say one thing, Hannah. It's a fast, personal anecdote. Did I ever tell you about the play that I was in in New York that was really bad? From what I understand, you were in a lot of really bad plays. That's fair. This one was one of the worst. And I'm not going to name the director. But I was having a tough time in rehearsal one night because I didn't like any of the choices they were making. And I was upset, and a friend of mine said, Nick, no matter how bad you think a director is, they've got a better seat than you. And I'm never going to forget that. Meaning you can't accurately critique your own performance because you're you. Yeah. So to take that lesson to heart for civics, it's hard to study American governmental systems when you're in them. You're basically on stage. Right. So first I'm going to explain why we have a two-party system, but then we'll talk about the pros, cons, and how other democracies do it. Hold on a second, Nick. I can hear the gathering of pitchforks. Uh, There are other parties in the United States. There are. There are many other parties. Keep the pitchforks in the barn. Uh, But I will say, as of this recording, December 2021, every member of the House of Representatives is a Republican or a Democrat. And in the Senate, there are two independents, but they always caucus with the Democratic Party. Of the 7,383 seats in state legislatures, only 25 of them are held by members of other parties. So, 
While there are other parties, we are known internationally as a country that has a two-party system. Yeah, and to continue on that thread, to put us in the us-versus frame of mind, I talked to a specialist in that, in comparative politics, Guillermo Rosas. He teaches at Washington University at St. Louis. Comparative politics basically uses the comparative method to say uh, meaningful things about politics in general. And here the emphasis is in using uh, different, the domestic politics of different countries as uh, data points, as observations that we can leverage to make general claims about political phenomena in general. Guillermo told me that his students get very animated when he teaches the two-party system because they are frustrated. It's not that they are apathetic, but they certainly feel alienated oftentimes, right? They see two options nowadays. It used to be that because I'm old enough to have uh, to have had uh, students that are now in their 30s uh, or 40s, uh, there was a time when, <laughs> you know, people complained that the parties were too similar. So there was no real option. When in modern history were the parties considered too similar? After World War II, there was this era of political post-war consensus where policy had very little to do with whether you had a D or an R next to your name. Most of the bills that passed in the 1950s and 60s were with bipartisan support. And voters expressed frustration with the fuzziness of the two parties. They, they didn't know who to hold accountable or what it was their representatives even stood for. Now that's not a complaint, right? The complaint now is that there's certainly uh, uh, a lot of difference in the platforms of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, but that they feel uh, too far away from these parties, that they would like uh, some other option that's closer to them. And that's a common complaint when you have a two-party system. It makes sense, right? Two parties, two options. And of course, these are parties that are going to have to pack a lot of content in their platforms. This is something that I have heard not just from listeners to our show, but guests. I did an episode on independence, and one guest said she considered being an independent to be an act of noncompliance, a political statement of great importance. Yeah, and I get that. We are at a moment right now of severe polarization. And if you told someone where you stood on a hot-button social issue, they could predict the probability of where you stand on 20 other issues that aren't even related to it. So you're saying there's frustration when the two parties are too similar and also when they are too different. Then why do we have it? Is the two-party system in the Constitution? Yeah, that's a really good question. It is not enshrined anywhere in our founding documents. This is Robin Best, professor of political science at Binghamton University, who also teaches comparative politics. And in fact, there's nothing in the Constitution that needs that says that we have to have either a particular type of electoral system or a particular type of party system. The primary reason why we have a two-party system in the United States is the electoral system that we use for many of our elections and um, almost all of our national level elections, which is the single member district plurality method of election. So I think many of our listeners know how we do elections in America, but they might not be familiar With that term, can we define it? Yeah. Single member district plurality method of election, SMP for short, also called first past the post voting. It's a winner take all system. It's just how we do it. 
You live in a geographic district, and in that district, you vote for one elected official, like a senator, congressperson. And the winner is the person with a plurality of votes. We can't say majority because there are usually more than two people on the ticket. It's, it's usually a plurality. So say the first place gets 40% of the votes, second place gets 30%, and the rest of the votes go to other candidates. So whoever wins that district, whichever candidate wins that district, wins the seat and the loser gets absolutely nothing. And what this does is it really focuses political competition between um, two candidates, but also two political parties. So one political party could conceivably win the district seat, and then there's a political party that kind of comes in second and might be able to overtake the winner the next time around. But this leaves those parties that came in third or fourth with little to no chance of winning over time. And is this why you see candidates leave third parties and join one of these big two? Yeah. I mean, if you're losing over and over as a Green Party or a Libertarian candidate, chances are you might change your affiliation to a D or an R so you got a chance. And the same goes for voters, Hannah. If a voter keeps voting for that third party and they never win anything in this winner-take-all system, they too will start to align with the red or the blue. And it's this combination of systems that creates a law. What is the law? Duverger's law. Duverger's very celebrated and with good reason as having come up with a statement that, you know, for political scientists basically has the force of law. This is one of the closest things we have to a law in political science is Duverger's law. So this was Maurice Duverger. Um, who expressed this relationship between a single-member district plurality method of election and a two-party system. So Duverger's law is very simply that the single-member district plurality method of election tends to favor a two-party system. That is the law. Are we not men? Um, and it's for precisely the reasons that we've been discussing. So Duverger himself separated the process here into a mechanical effects and then a set of psychological effects. That law says as long as we have winner-take-all, single-district plurality voting, it's a pretty sure bet that we'll be in a two-party system. But that's not to say that we're going to forever be Democrats and Republicans. We have had a lot of parties over the years. Oh, we sure have. Should we go through the list just for old time's sake? Maybe we should get you a button that you press that just does classical music and a carriage running down a cobbled street because it would save you a lot of time. It's true. George Washington was our only president who wasn't aligned with a party. He hated parties. That man saw a balloon on a mailbox he would drive right by. He would see them start to form during his administration. But in his farewell address, he excoriated parties. He said the spirit of parties, quote, serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. But they happened right away. Uh, we started with the Federalists, led by Alexander Hamilton, and the Anti-Federalists, led by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson. The Anti-Federalists start to go by the Democratic-Republicans. The Federalists die out around the War of 1812, and the Whigs rise to take their place. The Andrew Jackson-led Democrats come to contend against the Whigs. 
the Republican Party branches off the Whigs and grows into power to battle the Democrats. And from 1854 to now, it has been two parties, Republicans and Democrats. And I have to add, what those parties stood for changed an awful lot over 150 years. We've done episodes on the Republican Party and the Democratic Party if anyone out there wants the full story on realignment. But I can't help but wonder, is there a possibility of fulfilling George Washington's fantasy? Can we exist without parties at all? It seems improbable. Guillermo told me about a famed political scientist named Eric Elmer Schatzschneider, uh, who said that contemporary representative democracy is really not even imaginable in the absence of parties. Why? Uh, let me see if I can put this, encapsulate this in a one-minute uh, elevator pitch. I, I may fail. But the best explanation is that once you have representatives in Congress, you are selecting people that come from geographically circumscribed territories. So there is, in principle, no reason why people that show up in Congress or in Parliament the first time have uh, some sort of pre-built allegiance to a particular party, right? However, once they once they show up, they realize that they are going to be there for a while, right? Their terms their terms vary from two years to three, four, four whenever the next election is, um, and that they are going to have to be passing laws and building coalitions. And if you want to succeed, if you want to get laws passed that your constituents love, and don't forget, if you want someone to bankroll your campaign, you align with one of these coalitions. You may not agree with them all the time, but you do most of the time. The dirty secret is that politicians themselves know that they are tying their hands when they uh, enter into a party, right? They are tying their hands and they are oftentimes called to do things that they do not necessarily believe are in their best personal interest. But they trade this off for the opportunity or for, or for the predictability of belonging to a, to, a, to a coalition that they understand. Parties in politics, two parties in America, they are here and they're here to stay. But is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, we'll talk about that as well as how we measure up to other countries right after the break. But first, if you want to read about how the parties changed as part of a complete primer on how America works, check out our book, A User's Guide to Democracy. It has got the 101 on everything and is peppered with wonderful cartoons by New Yorker cartoonist Tom Toro. Also, we got a fun, goofy, free newsletter called Extra Credit. Let us say hello in your email every two weeks and tell you about the stuff we cut out from our episodes. Subscribe at civics101podcast.org. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people 
that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. We are back. And don't forget, Civics 101 is always free to listen to but thrives on listener support. Please contribute to civics education with a donation at civics101podcast.org. All right, so we got our hands up. They're playing our song. It's two parties in the USA. Okay, now to the U.S. versus. Do any other countries have a system like ours? Here's Robin Best again. It's really fun to teach American students about comparative politics because you learn how weird the U.S. is. Um, the U.S. is actually really strange and unique on a number of dimensions. And, and the two-party system is actually, in this day and age, quite rare as well. There are a few countries that have a system where the same two parties are vying for seats like us, uh, notably Jamaica, the Bahamas, and Zimbabwe. And there are other countries that vote like we do, but don't have a two-party system. Some of the other countries that have that use single-member district plurality elections, like Canada or the United Kingdom, they have very significant third parties that manage to enter their national legislatures, and we just don't. And one of the reasons why you might think that's the case is you might say that instead of two parties, we actually have a hundred. And here is where we are truly one of a kind. Political parties in the U.S. are organized on a state-by-state basis. So you could think of the U.S. as having like a New York State Democratic Party and then a Texas Democratic Party or a New Hampshire Republican Party and a you know Colorado Republican Party. And that you actually get some ideological and strategic differences between the party organizations by state. So the U.S. is actually quite unique in the structure of its party system, not only because it's a two-party system, but again, because these parties are kind of, they're very large, they're umbrella parties. And because of that, they can mask a lot of underlying variations, a lot of which take place at the state level. If the two parties are umbrellas, each encapsulating 50 state parties, I can see true federalism at work. A country where people are frustrated that their Democrat or Republican Party isn't necessarily repped at the federal level. That's a good point. So let's get into it. Give me a country that does it differently. You got it. Here is Guillermo Rosas again with Germany. In Germany, there probably are five to six parties represented in the, in the Bundestag. Germany has a multi-party system. They are a federal parliamentary representative democratic republic. The Bundestag, which he mentioned, is their federal parliament. And members of it are elected by the German people. There are 736 seats in the Bundestag, indeed divided by six parties. So there's, in principle, there's, there's something for everyone, right? You can, you can feel very close to a particular party. But it is not entirely 
it is not entirely obvious to voters what kind of governing arrangement they are going to get after all of the bargaining is uh, done uh, once the election has taken place. And that's not the case in the U.S. Sure, we have moderates and far-left and far-right politicians, but they're all aligned under a majority umbrella. In contrast, when you have a lot of parties, something for everyone, and there's no clear majority, how is anyone going to get legislation passed? Only through working with other parties. Sure, I'll sign your clean energy bill, but only if you add X, Y, and Z, and then you sign my bill, which maybe your constituents are going to hate. So the trade-off here is that you can elect someone who lines up exactly with what you want, a member of your very specific party, but you have no idea if they're going to succeed at getting anything done. Uh, And the corollary of that is that it's also going to be more difficult for you as a voter to know exactly whom you need to hold accountable for things that you dislike. Okay, that's an example of a multi-party system. Is there such a thing as a one-party system? Most one real one-party systems are occurring in countries that are not democratic, right? So China is a one-party system. Cuba is a one-party system. Vietnam is a one-party system. Uh, there are other systems. More and more so, we uh, in political science, we're moving away from a strict dichotomous division between authoritarian countries and democratic countries. Think about the United uh, United Russia in uh, in Putin's Russia, right? That would also be a competitive authoritarian regime where other parties can obtain representation in the Duma, but you know, it's it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty hegemonic presence of the of the of the main party. The state Duma is Russia's elected legislative body, and of its 450 members, 326 are the United Russia Party. Okay, we're not going to get into the pros and cons of non-democratic or authoritarian systems in this episode. But I will say, ah, it's pretty effective. Yeah, it's easy to get stuff done if you just do away with elections and democracy and representatives. A lot less gridlock. I think I understand the pros and cons of two-party versus multi-party. Two-party systems like ours are relatively easier to govern. One party is in power for a while, and they can get laws passed until the other party wins control. And the downside is a lack of choices. You've got two ways to address every issue in America. And multi-party systems offer more diversity of thought, but have more trouble passing laws. And there's less accountability. That's a pretty good summation, and I think Guillermo and Robin would both be proud of it. I bet Guillermo wouldn't say being a political scientist and all, but did he give any hint of what he thinks is the best of these democratic systems? Is there one that surpasses all others as champion? Many students, especially the young ones, believe that somewhere out there, there is a perfect political system that has the right amount of parties, that has the right configuration to allow uh, laws to be passed effectively, and implemented uh, with some good sense. And it is true that I think some systems are better than others, but that's a holy grail, right? I mean, it's, uh, well, it's not a search that will have a a clear final goal where you're going to find the perfect system. And I dare to ask him, Guillermo, I know there isn't a perfect system, but if you had to pick, which country 
do political scientists think is closest to that holy grail? Did he choose one? He did. What was it? Spain. 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 Spain would be kind of the, the, the place that people have in mind. And, you know, if you have been following politics in Spain, it's anything but placid, right? There's also a lot of problems. It's, it's complicated. But the argument there would be that uh, the way that Spanish voters um, send representatives to the Cortes, to their parliament, is that they are also divided geographically. I'm going to try to break down how Spain does it, and I hope we don't make a hash of things. But Spain is divided into 50 provinces. And each province elects members to Spain's Congress, called the General Courts. The more people that live in a province, the more seats it sends to the courts. It sounds a lot like our own congressional district. Yes, but with two massive differences. They do not use the SMP winner-take-all method. They use a proportional method. And the people don't vote for individuals. They vote for a party that has a pre-selected list of candidates. As an example, let's take Cadiz, that old town on the southwestern coast. Cadiz sends nine people to the courts. In their 2019 election, the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party got 30% of the vote and thus won three seats. The conservative Vox Party got 20% and they sent two people to the courts and so on. So what does that buy you? It buys you, on, in, in terms of the alienation that we've been talking about, it buys you the fact that you have more parties with, with, more, with uh, more diverse platforms all over the spectrum from far left to far right that you can choose from. So that's nice. At the same time, you are not fragmenting the, 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 the assembly or the parliament all that much. After all, there's only so many ways in which you can divide eight votes, right? Even you have 14... 40 parties competing, most of them are, are not going to get a lot of representation. Some political scientists say that Spain's system hits that sweet spot. In which you are obtaining some of the advantages of uh, a system like the United States, where you know who your Congress representative is, where you know the Congress representative spends a lot of time in, uh, in, uh, close to the constituents, develops a home style, wants to kiss babies and shake hands and talk to people and all of that. And the advantages of um, the more proportional systems that we tend to find in continental Europe, where there is more possibility for different interests to be represented. All right. My last question is, how do we measure up? Who wins in this us versus? Now, I am not saying, if we want to go back to the Street Fighter 2 reference at the beginning, that we should all choose Vega instead of Guile. I think maybe 1% of our audience is going to get that reference. Fair. That's fair. Guile is from the U.S., everyone. Vega is from Spain. But Spain is by no means a consensual nation politically. They've got divides and problems like we have all have divides and problems. But to know how the U.S. would do in a comparative matchup against Spain, Guillermo said, we can't. We have to wait and see. You know, the American two-party system has, has its problems. I'm not going to stand here and say otherwise. But it also, I, I, what I like about it is that it provides ample opportunity to build relatively lasting majority coalitions. I think we're going through a period in American history in which this is not quite working out because we seem to be in the middle of a process of realignment where the two big parties are trying to figure out how they are going to capture 
um, constituencies that they didn't use to represent. And I think it's going to take a while for the parties to sort this out. But uh, but I like the two-party system because of that, right? It, 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 especially in a country that's a, as heterogeneous as the United States. And in this liminal space of a realignment, the two big parties are looking to their constituents and deciding what their new platforms are, what the party stands for. And once we get through this phase of what Guillermo referred to me as growing pains, only then can we better assess how we measure up on a global scale. All right, until then, I'm sticking to Tekken. Well, that'll just about do it for a two-party party because a two-party party is a party I like. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Christina Phillips and Jackie Fulton. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer and single-handedly in charge of all social media related to Get Back. Music in this episode by Electro Swing, Creo, Bio Unit, George Gaskin. That's this guy. Bob Bangle Banner. Ari De Niro, Scott Holmes, Yoko Shimomura, who is the brilliant composer of the music in Street Fighter 2. And finally, that composer who didn't write Bobby Made a Kishki, Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Did you ever play it? Street Never. Never. I have no it. idea. You don't know who Ryu is? I've heard is. the name. I have no idea. Do you know, know if what... I say like, Harogan, what that means? Uh, I've heard that sound in arcades. <laughs> you know, I was once mugged as a kid um, and my clothes were stolen off of me to be to sell for Street Fighter 2 tokens at the local arcade. Who's going to buy those clothes for tokens? <laughs> Not my own. They probably realized they were really mugging the wrong kid when it came to fashion sense. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.